Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 24. Um, in the, those seat back pockets I mentioned before, you'll have, find a Bible. And those Bibles, if you don't have one or you know somebody that doesn't have a Bible, please take that as our gift to you or to them. Uh, we really want to get that in the hands of people that need it. Um, Matthew 24 is found on page 829, verses 1 through 14. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is the word of the Lord. God. Well, good morning, and let me just add my welcome to Scott's. We're really glad you're here this morning. My name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus. It's my delight to serve here, and really glad that you are here, especially if you're newer. Um, maybe you're new to Kansas City, and you're looking for a church home, or maybe you've come with a friend or a neighbor, uh, just checking out maybe for the first time, uh, either in a long time or the first time ever, what church and Jesus and all this is all about. And I, I hope this morning, if you are newer, if this is your first time, that you felt welcome here and that this is a place where you can begin to learn and explore um, who Jesus is and what the local church is really all about. We certainly uh, don't have it all together here at Christ Community, but we uh, are doing our best to follow Jesus uh, faithfully, and we hope that you sense that here this morning. Well, before we study the words uh, of Jesus that Scott read for us, I want to begin by asking for God's help in doing that important work because ultimately we don't just want more information. Um, we actually want to be transformed by these words. And if that's going to happen, we need God's spirit to be involved in the process. And so let's pause right now and just ask for him to, to do that for us. Father in heaven, we come before you now and ask that you would teach us that the words that you've spoken uh, here in Matthew chapter 24, um, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would actually change us, um, guide us, and comfort us, instruct us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. One of the most famous advertisements uh, it's still held up as one of the greatest examples of copywriting in all of history, um, is now recently been shown to be all but certainly a hoax. 
when Sir uh, Henry or Sir Ernest Henry Shackleton, uh, the famous Arctic explorer, Antarctic explorer, was preparing his expedition to the South Pole, it was said that he took out an ad in the Times of London with these words. And if you've read any kind of leadership literature, you've probably heard this, this story, right? So it, it said, men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition, an event of success. And it's long held that this was just the epitome of great copywriting in a newspaper ad, its efficiency and its compelling nature and this promise of danger. And it was said that, that 5,000 people uh, applied. But the trouble is no one's ever been able to find that ad in the archives of the Times or any of the other newspapers. And people have looked kind of in 50 years in either direction of when it was said to have been run, and Shackleton never makes any mention of it in his writings or his journals, and the first reference that they can find to this is in a book in like 1947 in the U.S., and so it's probably made up. It probably actually didn't happen, but Shackleton, whether he wrote those words or not, wasn't the first person to say words that marked a hazardous journey that seemed to potentially be a means of detracting or attracting people to him. Because Jesus in this passage this morning is, is doing just that. He's promising incredible hardship and pain and suffering and even death for those who would be his disciples. And this passage, unlike Shackleton's advert, is, is not a hoax. In fact, it's an extremely well-attested historical document that attests to what the real Jesus said and taught. But it does raise a question for us this morning. If this is what the real Jesus says, why would anyone want to follow the real Jesus? Because in those words, if you were listening when Scott read, there's warnings about false messiahs, false Jesuses, false Christs coming and when you read what Jesus says here, it's not hard to imagine why those would be appealing. Because it isn't hard to present a message that's more attractive, at least on the surface, than the one that the real Jesus is presenting here. Now let me just say too, before we dive more deeply into looking at this passage this morning, this text is one of the most notoriously difficult passages in the Bible uh, to interpret. And, and so whether you consider yourself a Christian or, or not, and you just begun to explore, uh, this is one of those passages that if you read it and you're confused, you're not alone. Um, the disciples uh, were confused, and, uh, and Jesus' followers ever since have, have disagreed about how do we fit with what Jesus says here, with what the Old Testament prophets have predicted. And I can promise you one thing for sure this morning, we're not going to answer all of those questions or solve all of those problems. And just know that, that faithful followers of Jesus, people who, who take this book seriously as God's word, um, at different times and places have come to different conclusions about exactly the timing and the flow of events that Jesus is talking about here. But regardless of how we understand the timing, the flow of events, passages like this one inevitably raise the question for us, are we living in the end times? Are these the last days? And how will we know if these are? 
And, and in light of kind of the contentious political climate in our country over the past six to 12 months, I've gotten that question from more people than I have in a long time. What we're going to see this morning as we look at Jesus' teaching here is that the sort of conflict and division and suffering that we're experiencing in our world and in our country are exactly what will characterize every age and moment as we wait for Jesus' turn, return. In some ways, our, our time is, is not unique. Jesus says this kind of conflict, division, suffering, wars, are exactly what you should expect in every time and age and moment as you wait for my return. Because you see, no matter how we interpret it, there are two things we cannot miss here. And that's that the real Jesus leads to division and that the real Jesus leads to suffering. He leads to division and he leads to suffering. So get ready for an encouraging message this morning. <laughs> So let's turn to that passage. If you haven't, um, you know, feel free to pull out one of those Bibles from the, uh, the, the pew back, the seat back pocket there in front of you and follow along if you'd like um, as we try to understand from this passage, why would someone want to follow the real Jesus if this is what he promises? You see, last week we looked at Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus confronts the religious leaders of Israel and in Jerusalem, in the temple, he denounces them in the harshest possible terms for leading the people astray. It's a, it's a sober warning for, for anyone who, like me or our other pastors here at Christ Community, our elders, for anyone who in some way serves as a spiritual leader. And in the process of denouncing those spiritual leaders, Jesus, at the very end of Matthew chapter 23, says something utterly shocking in verse 38. We, we didn't even touch on it last week. He alluded to the fact that Jerusalem and the temple would be left utterly desolate. Now, it's easy for us as readers 2,000 years later to skip over that in Matthew 23 and, and not, it just doesn't strike us as odd. But the disciples didn't miss it. And this is where we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 24. So Jesus and his disciples, they're leaving the temple complex, and they're starting to walk up the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem. And as they're doing that, it's almost like they heard Jesus talk about this destruction that's coming, and they're like, Jesus, look at these beautiful, amazing buildings of the temple complex, and their seeming permanence. And Jesus immediately responds, he's a bit of a wet blanket here. In verse 2 with these words, he says, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And again, this would have been a shocking statement to the disciples. Because the temple complex, was, it was a massive structure, and there's buildings in the main temple, and there's all this work, and it was seemingly built to last for centuries. In fact, we actually have those foundation stones did last for centuries. That's the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem today, or some of the, the lowest levels of the foundation of that building. I mean, it would be like Jesus going to Washington to see him walking around the National Mall and and pointing out the Capitol building and the Supreme Court and the Library of Congress and the Washington and Lincoln memorials and saying every one of these is going to be reduced to absolute rubble. 
Now, again, that, that's a little bit easier for us to imagine because and we've seen Independence Day. We have disaster <laughs> movies. We've seen the building blown up by the aliens. Um, we live in a time of nuclear weapons where a city can be destroyed in an instant. But 2,000 years ago in the first century, not only were there not nuclear weapons, there weren't even high explosives. If you're talking about destroying a building and not leaving one brick on top of another, that means knocking and prying those things apart. And we're not talking about little bricks like your house in Brookside or Prairie Village is built out of. These are massive stones. And yet in 70 A.D., nearly 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Roman Empire, Emperor, Emperor Titus would do just that, destroy Jerusalem and the temple, taking it apart massive stone block by massive stone block. So when the disciples hear Jesus predicting that event, it prompts them to ask the question, they really ask two questions, that Jesus responds to in the rest of this chapter, Look at verse 3. And he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, Jesus, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So they want to know, when is this going to happen, Jesus? And, and what will be the signs that it's going to happen? It's really two different questions, but Jesus answers them together about kind of what and when. And, and you have to remember, too, for the disciples, the idea of the end of the age, of a new age being ushered in, Jesus returning, all of that, and the temple being destroyed. For them, that was all kind of wrapped up into one web of ideas. But Jesus pulls those two things apart. And sometimes in Matthew chapter 24, he, he's talking about what's going to happen in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. And other times he's talking about what's going to happen at the end of the age when he returns and ushers in a new heavens and a new earth. And he goes back and forth between them, making it honestly really hard to follow at times. And no, is, this, is he talking about something that happened in the past in 70 AD? Or is this something that's going to happen in the future? Or is this something that applies to both circumstances and both events. This week is probably a little bit more about the temple and next week a little bit more about the end of the world, so something to look forward to for next week. <laughs> but as Jesus so often does in these instances, he doesn't exactly respond to the question that's asked, which always makes it a, a little bit frustrating, but Jesus knows he's, he's wiser than we are, so he tells us actually what we need to know rather than maybe what we want to know when we ask the question. And in fact, Jesus doesn't really start responding to the question at, at all. At first, he begins by giving a warning and telling them not to be alarmed. So why does Jesus give such strong warnings here? Well, because following the real Jesus leads us to division. So look at what Jesus says here in verse 4. Jesus answers their questions saying, see that no one leads you astray. That's a warning that's going to be repeated over and over again all throughout these chapters. See that no one leads you astray. For many, Jesus says, will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. 
and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you are not alarmed. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. But Jesus says all these are are but the beginnings of the birth pains. When all that stuff's happening, he says that's that's just the beginning. It doesn't mean the end is, is right here yet. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, you will be hated, betrayed. This is what Jesus says here. If you're following the real Jesus, no one is more divisive. And just ask your coworkers tomorrow morning at the office, what do you think about Jesus? And you can watch that sense of discomfort come, right? It reminds me of, of comedian Jim Gaffigan. He has this bit about no, nothing making people more uncomfortable than telling them you want to talk to them about Jesus. And, and he says, you know, even if you were to see the Pope on the street and say, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus, the Pope would say, easy freak. <laughs> I leave work at work. Um, <laughs> But we feel that, don't we? Which is why we must be winsome and thoughtful in the ways that we talk with others about the hope that we have in Christ. I mean, Jesus is clear in this passage that his message will be spread and proclaimed to every nation on earth. And so we are called to make disciples. We're called to be about declaring and explaining and pleading for people to come to know and trust Jesus and the good news of the gospel. But it will not be received with a warm welcome always or by all people. And if you're following the real Jesus, expect to experience division, even hatred in doing that. This is why Jesus warns us not to be led astray because there will arise teachers and leaders who will claim that there is a way to follow Jesus that does not involve division and and times even being hated by other people. And Jesus is warning us that's going to sound really appealing. Don't fall for it. If your desire is to fit in, you will in the end reject the real Jesus. So don't be deceived, Jesus says. Division is coming if you remain faithful to me. There will be wars, rumors of wars, but the end is not yet. There will be division, there will be conflict, but that's going to be normal in the time when you're waiting for me to come. The end is not yet. You see, again, I mentioned earlier, for the disciples, the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem and then the events of the end of the world, and their thinking, all that's wrapped up in one. When the temple goes away, the end of the world has arrived. And Jesus pulls those things apart. As New Testament scholar D.A. Carson helpfully explains, Jesus is teaching his followers that there will be a delay between those two events, between the destruction of the temple and the end of the age, the end of time. He writes, there will be a delay before the end, a delay characterized by persecution and tribulation for his followers, but one 
with a particularly violent display of judgment in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But then after that intense period of judgment and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, Jesus' followers will continue to experience persecution until Jesus is coming again. And all of the features that Jesus describes here of, of persecution, wars, famine, earthquakes, persecution, even being put together, that will be experienced, yes, by Jesus' disciples and followers who are there listening to him in that moment, and also by every subsequent generation of followers until Jesus returns. Carson continues, but though these things show that the end is near, none of them stipulates how near. And the tenor of the warning is that the delay will be substantial and that during this period, Jesus' disciples must not be deceived by false messiahs. In the period of this delay, the period in which you and I are living in right now, Jesus warns us that there is going to be people who are going to want to lead distray, who are going to offer alternate messages, and that we are susceptible to that. The the fact that Jesus is warning us against that means that, that he knows that we're going to be tempted, going to be enticed. And he says, don't be led astray. Sometimes I, I think, oh, I will, I would never be led astray. That's not what Jesus thought. He thought, I needed multiple warnings to not be led astray. We hear this kind of siren call of deception in our cultural context in claims like, well, all religions are really basically the same. Or, well, let's just coexist. Or ultimately, you know, all sincere people, ultimately, they, they find the truth no matter what path they take. You know, there, there doesn't need to be any division. Jesus says, don't be deceived. Because while these kinds of statements, they, they seem to be inclusive and tolerant, really they're actually incredibly exclusive. As exclusive as any other claims of any other system of thought or religious belief. Because for instance, if you make the claim that well, all the roads lead to the truth, that, that actually is an exclusive claim that those who think that only a few ways or one way leads to the truth are wrong. It excludes those who believe that only certain paths lead to the truth. And it puts you in conflict and division with those who hold that there's only one way instead of many ways. So Jesus says, don't be deceived. Following me will lead to division. But he also says, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed by that. Expect it. I'm in control. I know this is going to happen. And Jesus says, I know it's going to happen because it's, it's happening to me now. It's going to happen to me first. Before they ever reject you, Jesus says, they will and are rejecting me. So don't be alarmed. There is no rejection or hatred or persecution or fear or hurt or alienation or division that you will experience in life that Jesus did not also experience and that he did not experience first and for you. Which leads us to our second big point here this morning. Second, the real Jesus 
leads to suffering. He leads to division, but he, he also leads to suffering. It just keeps getting better, right? Because you sit there and maybe you're thinking, wait a second, I, I thought Jesus was supposed to make my life easier. But I came to Jesus so I could get my problems fixed. My life's a mess. I need help. Are you saying that life with Jesus is actually supposed to get harder? Well, yes. That's what Jesus is saying here. And yes, Jesus does bring healing and restoration in our lives in all kinds of incredible ways, but following him will lead to suffering. You see, a passive life is much easier. A life that's accountable to nobody is easier. Blending in, drifting from, from cultural trend and fad to trend and fad is easier. But if you do that, if you take that route, you end up leaving the real Jesus behind. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 15, and I'll just warn you, this is the part of the text where it does get even a little bit more odd, and we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, Jesus says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader, the reader of Daniel understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant or for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. So abomination of desolation. This is where, especially if you're not from a church background, you're probably thinking, okay, Bill, this is starting to seem like a little bit much uh, for a Sunday morning in February. Okay, so what's going on with the abomination of desolation besides being a rad name for a metal band? Am I right? <laughs> well, back in about 600 BC, Daniel prophesied that a Greek ruler, and if you were with us in the fall, we actually went through uh, some of the book of Daniel. If you remember, he was a Jewish leader who was deported to Babylon and spent his life in captivity there. Well, Daniel predicted that a Greek ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, would rule over Jerusalem, which happened around 175 BC. And when he did that, he built an altar to the Greek god Zeus in the Jewish temple, and he sacrificed pigs on it. If you know anything about Judaism, pigs in the temple, not a good thing. It's the abomination of desolation. And Jesus says it's going to happen again. And, and likely that was fulfilled, at least in part, in AD 70 when the Roman pagan army came and took the temple apart brick by brick, an abomination of desolation. And after that happens, Jesus continues in verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation. The idea of tribulation is, is being pressed upon, persecution, suffering, hardship. There will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now and no will never be. Such as Jesus is the worst suffering that the world has ever known. Following Jesus leads into a path of suffering. And so Jesus warns us again, don't be deceived. And in some ways, this is even harder uh, to embrace than the idea that Jesus brings division, at least for me. Because it's one thing, I mean, I, I want to be liked just like everyone else. But when you have people, maybe there being conflict or division, people not liking me, I, I don't like that, but I can say, okay, I get that. But suffering is, is even harder 
especially because for me as a white middle-class male living in a middle to upper class neighborhood in 21st century America, I've probably experienced less real suffering than most people who live lived in the history of the world. I'm, I'm not excited about getting more acquainted as suffering. I don't think any of us are. So when the real Jesus says that following him will include suffering, and potentially great suffering, it's hard for me, for any of us, to want to embrace that. And that's exactly why Jesus says, don't be led astray. We have to be on guard against false Christ, false teachers, because anything sounds better than what the real Jesus is calling us to in this moment. And there are, there are whole segments of Christian culture built on the idea of, of health and wealth, the prosperity gospel, it's often called, that if we have enough faith and trust Jesus hard enough that, that we'll be rich and, and healthy and we won't experience suffering. And, and it's actually great because we're kind of in control because we can muster up enough faith and, and then God will bless us. And that's an incredibly appealing message, no matter who you are, right? That if I do the right things and I can somehow have enough faith that I'm not going to experience suffering. In fact, I'm going to experience health and blessing and wealth. Don't be deceived. Sociologists like Christian Smith in his 2009 Oxford University Press book, Soul Searching, um, Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, um, argues that the real religion in the West isn't Christianity, but that the Real religion is something different altogether. Uh, it, it pretends to be Christianity, but it's actually what Smith calls moral therapeutic deism. The major tenets of which are that God just wants us all to get along, to be kind and nice to one another, to feel good about ourselves, and sort of like a genie in the sky that we only really need to talk to him or have him involved in our lives when we need him to give us something or to solve our problems. And other than that, he's content for us to kind of go along our lives without much interaction with him at all. It's the Jesus just wants us to be happy religion, which is so seductive, isn't it? I, it's a much more appealing message to proclaim than what Jesus talks about here in Matthew 24. Because I, we, I think, love comfort. We want to be happy. And to be clear, we should never intentionally invite suffering into our lives. That, Jesus doesn't teach that. In fact, Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to, to pray, Lord, keep me from temptation. Lead me not into temptation. That word temptation, we tend to think like, well, keep me from you know, being tempted to commit some you know, moral wrong. But that word temptation is even broader. It's hardship, suffering, trial. Keep me from trial. And Jesus says, don't ask to be brought into hard suffering circumstances. That's, that's not the teaching. Ask to be delivered from those, but expect that they will come. Jesus tells us that we should expect to experience suffering in a life following him. And the early church experienced this. We have recorded for us in the book of Acts, um, which is, comes right after the four Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then this little book uh, called Acts. It's actually not that little. It's 28 chapters long. But you have this book of Acts, which just tells the history of the early church. How did 
this little band of 12 disciples and a few followers begin to be a part of this thing called the church that Jesus is building in and through them. And many of the stories in Acts are stories of great suffering and death that Jesus' followers faced. But it isn't just back then either. In fact, persecution and suffering of Christians has, has never been greater. Um, sure, we don't experience it that often or maybe that intensely here in Kansas City, but around the world, it's everywhere. Um, last uh, couple years ago, 2015, CNN reported that persecution of Christians had reached uh, record highs, and then more recently in 2016 broke, broke new records on that. According to Relevant Magazine, 90,000 Christians were killed in 2016. And out of 195 countries in the world, Christianity is illegal and often punishable by death in 26% of them. And those are our brothers and sisters in Christ, united, adopted together. So suffering is a reality of following Jesus. So don't be deceived, but also don't be alarmed. Don't be deceived, but don't be alarmed. And I appreciate that Jesus pairs those two warnings in this text together. He says, don't be led astray, don't be deceived, but don't be alarmed. Because if we aren't deceived, if we heed that first warning and we really look at what Jesus is calling us to and, and see that for what it really is, I think Jesus knows that we're going to be alarmed because he's calling us to something really hard. But he says, don't be alarmed. Don't be scared. I'm with you. The Apostle Paul, who was one of those early church leaders who planted a number of churches and wrote a lot of uh, the New Testament that we have in the Bible, had to remind early Christians in the city of Thessalonica of some of the same things that Jesus spoke of here. He writes to them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in a letter he wrote to them. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Let no one deceive you in any way. Sound familiar? This is what Jesus is telling us. But listen to how Paul goes on. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification. That means being made like God, being made holy, being made new. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospels so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we banish fear? How do we banish alarm when, when we're watching the news, when we hear wars and rumors of wars, when we experience and we look at the experience of those who are being persecuted around the world. How do we keep from being alarmed? Well, by continuing to recount the good news of the gospel to ourselves and to the world around us. God has chosen you. He's rescued you. He's making you new. In Jesus Christ, you are a beloved, adopted child of God who is going to share in his glory. And Jesus declares of those he rescues his sheep that they know his voice and he knows them and that he gives them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will ever be able to snatch them out of his hand. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and have been made new, no one can ever take that 
away from you. Nothing can separate you from him. No matter how much suffering you may face, the one thing we never have to fear is that someone can take us out of Jesus' hand, can rob us of the eternal life that he has secured for us in his death and resurrection. Only that truth of the gospel can calm our alarm, can calm our fears, because what Jesus is saying is going to happen to people who follow him is alarming, if we don't have that hope. And this is why we follow the real Jesus, even given the assurance that following him will lead to division and suffering, because the real Jesus leads to a better hope. Matthew writes these things for us because in just a few days he would watch Jesus die. And then he would see Jesus alive again. And he heard Jesus promise that he would come back. Jesus didn't stay dead. Yes, he went to the cross for our sins, for our pain, but Matthew saw him alive again. Hundreds of people saw him alive again, which means that there's hope for you and for me, not just for a better year or a better decade or a better life, though absolutely there is. Jesus will enrich the, enrich the quality of your life, even in the midst of suffering, but there's a better hope for all of eternity. That if I'm with him, death will not rule over me. And when he returns, he will make the world right again. All that is in the world everywhere, inside of me and all around me, that history is moving somewhere, which is the only way that life has any meaning. And I love the metaphor that Jesus uses in this passage. Um, the other biblical writers pick up on this. The division and pain, the suffering and tribulation, Jesus calls them birth pains. Do you notice that in verse 8? And it's going to come up again and again here in these chapters. And while I certainly know um, better than to pretend what it's like to be in labor, um, I think it's safe to say that labor gets worse before it gets better. Um, for those of you who have experienced it, I think that's right. And Jesus says we can expect the same, that it's going to get worse before it gets better. But when it's finally over, the pains, the groans, the pushing, the striving, the suffering, the tribulation, the persecution, all of it. Then you're holding the child. And was it worth it? Of course. Instantly, it's worth it. I've seen that moment with both of our daughters the second that Rachel held them. The joy the pain, real though it was, it wasn't for nothing. And when we get there, no matter how ugly the road, when we're united with all believers from every time and place, do you think that any of us will really still wonder why we would follow the real Jesus? Of course not. So don't be deceived. Don't be alarmed. Only the real Jesus gets us to the end. And the end is good. It's very good. It's the best of all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you, by your word, the good news of the gospel, keep us from being deceived? And would you comfort us in our alarm? Would you teach us to be 
patient and winsome in the midst of division and faithful, even joyful in the midst of suffering. We pray this in Jesus' name and ultimately for his glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Which we